Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Turn to John chapter 2. We'll pick up at verse 23. John 2 at verse 23. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would illumine our minds by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding. And Father, that we would be those who, because of the Spirit's work, would uh, be convicted by the preaching of your word, and that we would not go away from it forgetting it, but that we would remember it, and that we would apply it, that we would do it, that we would obey your word to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So from going back to the beginning of chapter 2, we go from Cana, where Jesus changed water into wine, and then Jesus made a quick stop in Capernaum, uh, which seemed to be his home base, and then entered Jerusalem. When he entered Jerusalem, he went straight to the temple which was being profaned because it was being made a place of business. And he drove the animals out. He overturned the tables of the money changers and announced he was, uh, he was going to rise from the dead. And that temple would uh, be a lasting temple. Right? So there was some bad economics going on. And they were not giving glory to God in the exchange of money and goods. All of this in the first few days of his public ministry, right? Now, today, we're, we, we take up um, the Holy Spirit's brief explanation here in these three verses of what is happening in Jerusalem and internally in Jesus' own spirit. Already, notice, many believed in his name. Many believed in Jesus' name. They are seeing what he's doing, these signs, the latest of which is his authority to clean up the house of God without being arrested. They see Jesus' zeal for his Father's house and for his Father's name, for his Father's glory. And those people are, the text says, believing in his name. Perhaps there were other miracles he did that... that aren't recorded here for us. We know that all of Jesus' miracles are not recorded for us in the scriptures. There are many other things he did of which if they were written, it would fill up volumes. But he, he, they, people are believing as they see these signs. The question is, were they truly believers? Were they born again? Right? Or did they just have head faith? Did they just have head knowledge of Jesus? Acknowledging that Jesus was extraordinary, but they didn't, they didn't trust in him for their salvation. 
a demon faith, we would call it. Right? The rest of the passage seems to argue that they did not truly believe in Jesus, and the reason we know that is because Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. So whatever they had, it wasn't the kind of faith where Jesus would entrust himself to them. Ryle says that these people did not believe in the heart. He says the distinction between intellectual belief, and this is where we're going to settle for a minute, the distinction between intellectual belief and saving belief and between one degree of saving belief and another ought to be carefully noticed in Scripture. There is a faith which the devils have and then a faith which is the gift of God. Ryle is making mention of the book of James when he mentions the faith of devils, right? James 2.9, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What do they believe? What do these demons believe? They believe a concept about God, an intellectual concept. He is one. He is a unity. Right? There is only one God, but it does not lead those demons then to assent to that truth or to trust in that one before them. Right? And that head faith is insufficient to save. Right? The, classical, the classical theological definition of faith is that it is made up of three elements, all of which must be present to be saving faith. Those three parts are knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, trust. If a person only has the first two of those elements, we should suspect that his faith is not really faith. So knowledge, what's knowledge? You need to have information about God. You need to know things about him and his character. Assent, one must believe that the information that you've received about God is true or is the truth. Right? And then trust, one must then, based upon that knowledge and that assent, commit oneself to God, the God of those truths, right? Resting in him, resting one's salvation in him. Here's another way to put those three parts of faith. Knowledge, God is and we may know him. Trust, God is right and his word is truth. That's assent. And then trust, God is my Lord and my God and I love him. That's trust. And so, remember this example of the Apostle Thomas, who has, has come to be known as Doubting Thomas. Right? He had been with Jesus, uh, learning at his feet, and yet after Jesus' death, it seems he did not have faith. He certainly had the first of those three parts of faith. He had uh, a knowledge of Jesus. He was taught by Jesus for three years. He traveled around with him, right? He ate meals with him. He saw countless miracles performed by Jesus. He heard his sermons, countless other interactions with other people he had heard that we don't even have recorded here. Thomas also had the second of these three, those three parts of faith. He assented to Jesus' teaching, right? When Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, Thomas exclaimed, let us go also so that we may die with him, right? He's on board. He's assenting to what Jesus is teaching. He, it seems, had accepted much of what Jesus had said to the point where he was willing to die. No one goes this far unless you've assented. But then this scene after Jesus appeared to the disciples after his death. This is in John chapter 20. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came 
So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then what does Thomas say? Thomas says, my Lord and my God, right? That trust. Now at this point, that is the third part of faith, right? Thomas is trusting in Jesus. We see Thomas trusted in the Lord and his faith. That gift of God is alive. Now Jesus is not simply God, not simply a speaker of the truth, but he is Thomas's Lord and Thomas's God. Knowledge is sent and now trust. Faith is alive. Right? His faith is a saving faith, not a head faith, not an intellectual faith, not a demon faith. Now clearly, there is a sort of belief that does not end in trust. There is belief in Jesus that does not end in trust. Uh, this is the faith that that is spoken of in James chapter 2, right? Uh, it is the faith of demons, and really as we see it, it involves only the first two elements of faith, knowledge and assent without the third, trust. So what do demons know? What sort of knowledge do demons have, right? Half of you don't even believe demons exist, and that's something that you have to get over with the help of Scripture. Demons exist, right? But the other half of you who think demons exist, then what do they know? What knowledge do they have? Clearly, the demons we read of in Scripture knew that Jesus was the Son of God. They knew he was the Son of God. And they knew this even when the people of Israel are still clueless about who Jesus is. The people don't get it, but the demons have some superior knowledge at this point. In Mark 1.34, we read this. And Jesus healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In Luke chapter 4, we read this. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark 3, 9 through 12, we read this. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. It's so crazy, right? They shout this. They're, they're like... They're announcing who he is. They're heralding the Son of God. You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Here's Jesus warning those unclean spirits not to go about blabbing about who he was. He wanted to be able to move about freely. So to summarize, the demons had a knowledge of God that even the men and women of Jesus' time did not have. They knew who he was. They knew Jesus was the Holy One of God. They knew he was the very Son of God. So the demons have a depth of knowledge that is quite extraordinary. Remember, 
that the demons are recognizing him, but his own people aren't recognizing him. Remember John chapter 1, right? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So though the people do not know him, and therefore do not receive him, the demons do know him professing that he is the Son of God. Now, the next question is, do demons have the second part of faith, which is assent? Do they know him, and beyond that, do they acknowledge that what he says is true? Well, they certainly obey the voice of his power, fleeing from people as Jesus heals them. They don't just identify Jesus as the Son of God, but they acknowledge that he has power. Remember the demon, the demon who asked, have you come to destroy us? And James 2 says, you believe that God is one. Okay, that is knowledge of God. Believing certain things to be true about God, he is there and he is one. Next it says, you do well. The demons also believe. Okay. The demons have the same knowledge of God, but it doesn't stop there. James sort of grinds this point in a bit. The demons also believe and shudder. There is a fear the demons have, an assent to the power of God, an acknowledgement that God is powerful. The demons know they can do nothing to overcome the power of God, which is a far cry, way higher than most men believe in God's power. The demons know they may only do what God allows them to do. At this point, you know, we are moving deeper along the road to real faith. There are many who, like the demons, may acknowledge that there is a God, but honestly, there are few whose faith reaches to that of the demons. Perhaps there are many um, that acknowledge there is a God, fewer that acknowledge that he is powerful, but then their faith stops. Right? They do not commit themselves to him. They do not assent to God's truth and power. Rather, they believe God exists, perhaps to do their bidding. Right? The, the, the sort of magic fairy tale Santa Claus theory of God. Um, they believe God is, exists to respond to their desires, to bend his law to their own sense of what is fair and right. And their faith doesn't even make it to the level of the demons, if that's the case. Right? This is the faith of the man or woman who says, my God wouldn't send anybody to hell. Right? Though God has said through his son that that is exactly what he intends to do with those who will not believe in his son. Certainly the demons who hate God, who hate his children, are incapable of the third element of faith, which is trust. My Lord and my God. The demons will never say that. They are locked up in their determination to oppose God and will not come close to making proclamation that Thomas made, right? Demons have faith, but it's a dead faith, a merely intellectual faith. Many men and women exhibit that kind of faith today also. A dead faith, an intellectual faith, a faith that is paper thin, a faith that may acknowledge there is a God but has no intent ever of assenting and then trusting. There are examples of men and women in Scripture who share this sort of demon faith. 
simply knowledge and assent without trust. The classic example is the sort of faith of the Pharisees. They had a deep, deep, deep knowledge of God. They understood Moses. In fact, Jesus even says, listen to what they teach, just don't do as they do. Right? So they have great knowledge. In fact, um, yeah, he, Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. Right? They're hypocrites. So in one sense, they assented to God's word, yet in another sense, they did not. Perhaps they had uh, a lower assent than even the demons. The following passage speaks to their unwillingness to believe God, John 8. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. And have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you will seek to kill me. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. <laughs> Abraham is our father. Right? And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. The man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were, born, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, what does he say next? You would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of, the father, of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Wherever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies." But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. They did not trust in Jesus Christ, rather they trusted in their own righteousness before God. They had an intellectual faith, not a true faith. The Pharisees had superior knowledge of God, but no real faith. They neither fully assented to God's word, nor did they ever put their trust in Jesus Christ, declaring him Lord. If they had done that, they would have loved him, and in loving him, they would have obeyed him. So the Pharisees are, are one classic example of, of of a half faith, of a dead faith, a demon faith. 
Then there's this striking passage in Matthew chapter 7. It goes beyond the world of the Pharisees and hits very close to home. This passage relates closely to the message of James about faith working, where he is speaking to the fact that faith produces, right? Faith produces fruit. A faith without fruit is dead. Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Good tree, good fruit. Good faith, holiness, right? Bad tree, bad fruit. False faith equals unholiness. And then, and then the topic in chapter 7 of Matthew shifts. And um, listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Are you telling me that doing miracles is lawlessness? Are you telling me that, that, that you know, casting out demons is lawlessness? Seems like an unkind judgment. They've prophesied in his name and he calls it lawlessness. Yes, it's lawlessness because everything apart from faith is sin. Simple knowledge of God and even the production of good works. That's what Matthew is saying. Even the production of good, impressive, uncommon works is not equivalent to saving faith. Knowing the truth is not the same as assenting to the truth and committing oneself, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. The people of Jerusalem in Passover season of the year 27 were not committing themselves to Jesus and Jesus knew it. He knew it because he observed their behavior, not because he observed their behavior, but because he peered into their hearts. He peered into their hearts. He knew, our text says, what was in man. His divine omniscience knew the hearts of man and the hearts of these particular men in Jerusalem. God observes all our actions. Further still, he knows all of our thoughts. He knows what is in our hearts. Whether that heart is a heart of flesh or a heart of stone, he knows what it is made of. And this is what we, this is what we sing about when we sing Psalm 11, right? We sang Psalm 11 last week, I think. I mean, do you, do you, did you notice this, that that whole psalm is, is sort of putting forward the horrific idea that God knows everything about your hearts? He, he sees your hearts. And, and Scripture testifies that the heart is just filled with goodness and goodies and kindness and happy things and puppies and, and maple sugar candy. Mm. 
No, (laughs) that is not what Scripture says. The heart is desperately wicked, desperately wicked. That Psalm 11 that we sing, but the Lord is in his holy temple. God is on his throne, high in his heaven. What his eyes behold would make you tremble. What he sees would make you, make just kill you. He sees the hearts of men, it ends. Right? And then each of the choruses is slightly different. For the Lord is in his holy temple. God is on his throne high in the heavens. What his eyes behold would make you tremble. He sees your every plan. He knows what you're scheming. For the Lord is in his holy temple. God is on his throne high in his heaven. What his eyes behold would make you tremble. He knows the hearts of man. Solomon said of God, You alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. 1 Kings 8. Jesus knew that uh, those there in Jerusalem were, who were observing his miracles, many of which, again, not recorded here, that they were wowed by his actions, but hard of heart toward him. They may have wanted to be groupies, but they didn't want to go all in. Right? They, they, they... They may even acknowledge that he is God, but they, being heart of heart, do not think at that point he's worthy to be worshipped. I mean, think about it for a moment, this, this statement. He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. I mean, th- stop and think about that. He knew what was in man. The Son of God has observed every sin ever committed from the sin of Eve until this moment. And he knows and has knowledge of every sin that will ever be committed in the future as well. Right? He knows, he has observed every sin ever committed all the way up until yours that you committed this morning. He's observed the cesspool of man's heart through all the ages. His observation that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually led him, led God to even regret making man. And it was only by God's mercy, it was only his mercy, right, that triumphed over judgment when he regarded Noah as righteous. He... he, He looked upon Noah with favor. Why? Was Noah any different? No. No, he chose to do that. God has observed the sins of every single man since the beginning of time. He has observed the explosive passions of men that have caused him to steal and to lie and to rape and to murder. He has observed every ethnic cleansing. He has observed every hateful thought. He has observed every self-pitying sigh. He has observed every adulterous fantasy. He has observed every unkindness. He has observed the very ocean of man's pride. He has observed his own son being nailed to a tree by the hands of sinful men. He knows the hearts of men. He knows what lies within man. And that brings us to the amazing statement in the middle of verse 24. 
But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. He knew their hearts, he knew their sins, he knew their half-faith, and how exactly at this point was he not entrusting himself to them? Had he, had he not taken on flesh for them? Was this not his father's plan which he was voluntarily taking on for the sake of their souls? Was, he not, what, was, was not his very presence proof that he was entrusting himself to them? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Of course, he was committed to saving those that were being given him by the Father. But he was not in any way going to depend upon these half-faithful. Perhaps Andrew and Peter, Philip, Nathaniel uh, were confused right at this point. They, they've, they've put, uh, perhaps those apostles have put their trust in Jesus at this point. But they look at this and um, they're confused that Jesus did not warmly welcome these people of Jerusalem with open arms, right? To all outward appearance, they seemed like believers. But Jesus knew better. He knew better because he knows what's in man. He, he was eternally committed to his elect who would, who would come to believe, but he would not be deceived by hypocrites. He will not be caught off guard by, by half-professors. He knows those of you who are quarter, half, or three-quarter professors who have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. He knows. And he knew their hearts in Jerusalem on that day. Ryle says, Ryle says they may wear a cloak of religion and appear like whited sepulchers, Beautiful in the eyes of men, but the eyes of Christ see their inward rottenness, and the judgment of Christ will surely overtake them, except they repent. It is remarkable that this statement is here in Scripture, that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. The conception we have of Jesus is a very American, democratic, equal access sort of Jesus. Right? We assume that he is always openly available to all. And that all that is left to do is for you to invite Jesus into your heart. But that, but that he always and must respond to such an invitation is pride. But do not take away the absolute necessity of God to, to give the new birth, right? Where does chapter 3 go? I mean, it's clear that there's a flow here. Chapter 3 is, is about the new birth, right? And you, you may do amazing works. You may intellectually wrap your head around some of the deep complexities of Trinitarian theology, Right? You may love your neighbor with more than just common decency. You may actually be committed to them and seeing, seeing them um, comfortable. But whether you are a child of God depends not on your will, not on any other man's will, but on the will of God alone. There are those to whom Jesus entrusts himself. And those like these men and women in Jerusalem to whom Jesus 
will never entrust himself. Does that upset you? Does the sovereignty of God and of all things salvation take the wind out of your sails? Does the fact that God loved Jacob and hated Esau offend you? I mean, I think it offends all of us on a certain level. Right? Does his necessary initiative and choice make you fuss and wonder why he still finds fault? If there is no way to assert your own will in the question of your eternal salvation, well, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, who do you think you are? What's wrong with you people? Right? Who do you think you are? The apostle says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, fit for heaven, and another for common use, fit for hell? So let me conclude here. Of what does your faith consist? Of what does your faith consist? Have you been born again? Is, or is your faith merely a smattering of things you know about God and some assent to the conservative principles of Scripture? But not a love and trust and a reclining into the bosom of Jesus Christ as John did. If it is only the first two things, then you may not be born again. And stop deluding yourself. If you don't have a, a, a warmth of heart toward God, stop deluding yourself. You may not be born again. Do not then put off trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Don't put it off. Today is the day. You should do that. Civility or intellectual ability or kindness or political positions or education are insufficient for salvation. Stop holding yourself aloof and distant from God like a scientist making observations about a spider. Rather, honor God as God, right? And give Him thanks. Do not treat Him as an abstract power. Treat him as a loving father who has you as the apple of his eye. Right? Know him, trust him, love him. Those who do so will give evidence that the Spirit has come to live within them. That he has blown about where he pleases and has put the new birth into that man's heart. Is that your heart? Has Christ entrusted himself to you? Last night I was watching, or a couple nights ago, I was watching a live stream of a concert that a few of you attended, Rhonda Vincent and the Rage. She sang a gospel song about the book of life. Just her with her guitar. She introduced the song, giving some of the background, and then at the very end of her remarks, she just very simply said, I hope your name is in the book. I hope your name is in the book. She didn't assume everybody's name was in the book. She, she was hoping that your name was in the book. Simple enough statement, but profound. She did not, you know, she, she, um, she did not say, I hope, I hope you do what you can to make sure your name is written in the book. She said, I hope your name's written in the book. 
The names written there in God's book were written down from the foundation of the earth. It's published and printed already. It's published and printed. It's been released. Those in that book will be born again. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I remind you who may be wavering, you who have only an intellectual faith, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Repent and believe. Come to him. Love the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the full truth. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. See the two sides of that? Come to Jesus. Assent and then love him. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are the one true living God. And Father, we thank you that you have been merciful to us because we were dead and blind and miserable and hostile and angry at you. And yet you have birthed us anew. You have given us a a heart of flesh. Father, you you have been gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Lord, we thank you. And even still, Father, we we are ungrateful at times and we sin against you. And you continue to share your mercies with us every morning. We're grateful for that, Father. And Father, I pray for those who may be wavering, who, who, know, who, who know Jesus as just on an informational level. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and they may truly believe that they would would have eyes to see and ears to hear your word and they would see you through the word. That they they would know in their heart by the work of the Spirit that they are children of God that there would be a difference, that there would be a, a living faith, that there would be then a, an ability to, to overcome sin by the power of the Spirit. Father, we, I pray that you would, you would grant those with still hard hearts, soft hearts, pray that they would acknowledge you, that they would love you, that they would speak about you, that they would think about you, that they would pursue you in your word, that they would pray to you, that they would fellowship and meditate on you, that they would, they would have uh, that every one of their thoughts when they wake up in the morning to when they go to bed would be about you. Their minds would be taken off the world and put on things above where Jesus lives and reigns. pray that, that they would see that this world is a spiritual world, not just a world of, of atoms and protons and neutrons. 
And Father, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts that we truly would, would walk in a manner worthy of our Savior, that our love for you would only increase. And Father, we pray now as you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we come now to the table, and this is a table for people who love Jesus. This is the table not for those who have intellectual knowledge about Jesus or those who who think he's powerful, but those who love him, those who know him, those who have been born again. It's for those who have been baptized, right? If you haven't been baptized, then this table is not yet for you. This is also a table for those who are members of a church or who are seriously pursuing membership in a church. And we think that's important because to come to the table, it requires examination, and elders help you do the work of examination. That is, their, uh, that is one of their main tasks. And so those things must be true. And then also coming to this table, as I'm about to read in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that you must come to this table having examined yourself, right? An examination. There's examination work that we do ahead of time. Right, Like we often will go to a doctor and they'll draw blood so that they can examine us and figure out what's going on in us. As Christians, we're to examine our spiritual lives. We're to examine ourselves and see, okay, I was an absolute jerk to my wife this week. I treated my kids poorly. I lusted for images on this computer screen. I was, um, I was unkind to strangers whatever, you do that work and then you see them and then what do you do after that? If you, is it just enough to see them? No, you confess them. And how do we confess our sins before God? We just tell him exactly what we've done. He wants to hear about our sins as he describes them, not as we think about them. And so be honest in your repentance. This is what I did, Father, it was wrong of me. Don't use euphemisms with God. Don't try, you know, he knows. He knows your heart. And then you do that. And then, and then God says, okay, my son, uh, sin no more and, and believe in my son. Love my son. Come to my son for the forgiveness of your sins. And then wonderfully, he provides us with this meal where by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, we feast upon the body and blood of Jesus Christ spiritually. We feast upon it. It's a means of grace. It builds us up. But only, right, if we've done the work of self-examination. If we haven't done that, then this meal does something else. 
this meal then reaps judgment upon you. Right? So if you come to this table without faith and you come to this table having just blown off self-examination, well then you could rightly be eating judgment upon yourself. Let me read it to you so you don't take my word for it, you take the Lord's word for it. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. It's all there. It's all there. So if you've done the work of self-examination, if Jesus is precious to you, if he's the pearl of great price, then come to this table and be fed and be refreshed and trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this fellowship meal with you. We thank you that it has been made possible by the work, the humiliating work of Jesus upon the cross, where his body was broken and his blood was shed. Lord, we ask that you would bless these ordinary elements to a holy use, that they would work in us, Father, by faith, and that we would be built up and strengthened to live in newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.